Thank you, Jason and team, for that wonderful music. Stand in your love, King of Kings, and what a beautiful name it is. Will you pray with me now? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to pray for this body, your body, here at Fellowship Bible Church. I come praying in the name of Jesus, the name that was given power above all names. Lord, help us to remember that you will never leave us nor forsake us. You are our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. Lord, I pray for those who feel as though a storm is raging in their lives. The battle feels intense some days. We get tired, we get weak, and it's hard to keep going in the face of defeat. But your word in Joshua 1.9 says, Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee wherever you go. I decree and declare that we will not be afraid. We will not fear because you are with us. We are only strong and courageous because the God of the universe, the creator of the heavens and the earth is with us. Your word in Psalms 147.3 says, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Lord, you are near to those who are sick and depressed. Depression must go. Pain and sadness must go. Sickness must go. Anxiety and worry must go in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, just as you are on the throne, hey, we know everything is going to be all right. You have promised to supply all our need according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus, according to Philippians 4.19. We thank you, Lord, for our finances here at Fellowship Bible Church. Please continue to bless the financial needs, and may we all give generously. May our leadership know how to handle the money wisely and according to your leading. Dearest Jesus, who wept at the death of your friend and taught that they who mourn shall be comforted, grant comfort and peace in your presence to those who have lost loved ones. May they know your grace is sufficient this day, this hour, and moment by moment. We do pray for the peace of Jerusalem and for the whole house of Israel. Open their eyes to see you, Jesus, as their Yeshua. Church, we live from a position of victory already won. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Satan, you need to know that you're going to lose this battle because we are the church of the living God, Fellowship Bible Church. We are the blood-washed, spirit-filled church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And in the end, you're going down, Satan. Hey, amen, hallelujah. Father, we pray for the salvation and deliverance of our loved ones. May they come to know you as Lord and Savior. Deliver them from the power of darkness. Create in them a hunger and a thirst for you and you only, and show them a way of escape. And dearest Lord, our hearts do ache for the Ukraine and for the conflict over there, Lord. Please place your hedge of protection over this country and its people. Please meet their basic needs. Make a way for them to receive funds and humanitarian aid. May they 
feel your presence and your peace. May your everlasting arms hold them at this time of great fear. Cause the Russians to lose the will to fight. Cause them to be afraid, to be confused, or use some other method to stop this conflict, Lord. And Father God, we do thank you for our pastor, Tim. Thank you for the good shepherd of this church. Thank you for the many hours he spends with you to bring us the word of God weekly. Holy Spirit, empower him today to boldly proclaim the truth of your word. Help him to not grow weary and well-doing or fall away, but provide grace upon grace over him. You are a great prayer-hearing, prayer-answering, covenant-keeping, miracle-working God, and we bless your name, we glorify your name, and we thank you for hearing our prayers and answering them according to your will in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Amen. Thank you, Miss Myra. Thank you for being here this morning for our 1030 worship service and to gather in the presence of the Lord and to gather in the presence of his um, risen body, the church. Uh, we have a lot going on over the next couple of weeks. I told you last week that we were working out details for what Easter Sunday would look like, recognizing we will not be able to worship in our main building on Easter. So if you saw the church email that went out, you already know the plan, but here it is. We are going to have one single service on Easter Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at Walnut Hill Farm. So if you have never been there before, it's about 20 minutes from here. It's on the, other, it's on the north side of Dalton. It's in the Prater's Mill area. It's a beautiful facility, and um, it is going to be really a cool opportunity for everybody to be gathered there together. Um, we've been doing these two services for a while now. At one point, we were doing three. We have two services. We have a bunch of people sitting in the gym right now in overflow. We have people still live streaming at home. Uh, we want everybody to be accommodated Easter Sunday, 1030 at Walnut Hill. Now, one thing about that is we will not be live streaming that service. We will be recording that service and posting it after the fact. So those of you that are at home right now, we want you to know that, and we want you to be there because there's plenty of space, um, and the way it works at Walnut Hill, there's this huge barn, so we will be gathered inside, but we're going to hope for a really good day, and we're going to open up the big doors, we're going to let the air flow through, and we're going to have a little bit of inside-outside dynamic in there, plenty of space for everybody, and our priority was we wanted one service that could, could accommodate everybody on Easter Sunday. And we can't do that in our sanctuary right now. Uh, we thought about doing it in the gym, but y'all, Walnut Hill is way cooler than the gym. Um, <laughs> we thought about doing it outside, and this, this setting gives us the benefit of, uh, of enjoying the weather a little bit, but if the weather is not good, it's still undercover as well. So I hope that you will all join us that Sunday. Um, now, that weekend, we've got a little bit more going on. Easter uh, weekend, Good Friday, uh, 6 o'clock, we do have a service in this room, and it will be live streamed. 6 o'clock, Friday evening, Good Friday, April 15th. And then Easter morning, before we go out to Walnut Hill, you say, well, I really like being in the Doug Gap area. We do have a service in the Doug Gap area on Easter Sunday. It's at 7.15 in the morning. We are doing a, a Doug Gap Community Sunrise Service alongside Grace Presbyterian and Doug Gap Baptist Church. So we'd love for you to join us for that as well. Three service options, um, Easter weekend, Good Friday here, um, 
Sunrise 715 at Grace Prez. That's going to be by their, their pond out in front of their church there. All three churches are sharing responsibility and leadership that Sunday morning at 715. And then 1030 a.m., join us at Walnut Hill Farm, and we would just love to have everyone there. It's also an opportunity, y'all. I read an article this week. Out of those that were engaged and committed to churches um, at this point two years ago, in early March 2020, less than 80% have come back at this point. Something like 78% of those that were regular church attenders in early 2020 are back to regularly attending church at this point. Um, This is an opportunity for us to reach out to those that have a previous church involvement but no... but no current church involvement. Those that may be cultural Christians that have this idea of of Easter as significant, but don't have a regular connection to a local church or have some semblance of what Christianity is all about, searching, questioning what that means for them. Easter is an opportunity in our culture and in our society. And so make the invitation I mean, if, if you've thought about inviting somebody here right now, you're probably thinking, well, I could invite somebody in, but boy, it's really cramped in that room. I don't know if there's going to be enough seats. There will be enough seats on Easter Sunday. We will have room. We'd love to, uh, to pack out that barn up there and to have some people that are sitting outside um, be, participating in the service from there. Um, we have the room. We want to use the room. So use this as an opportunity to invite lost people, to invite unchurched people, to invite those people that have fallen out of regular engagement in church. Um, let's use that opportunity together this Easter. So invite people, come, make, make a plan in your schedule uh, to be there for Easter Sunday. Also, this week, we have a Rebuilding Hope Workday this Saturday, April the 2nd, from 8 until 2. I talked to the group that leads the first Saturday fellowship events, and this is going to basically become our first Saturday, because this Saturday is the first Saturday of the month. This is becoming our fellowship event for uh, the month of April, and it is going to be a work day that starts at 8 o'clock. We'll meet at the church parking lot at 8 o'clock, and we will continue through lunch. We'll provide lunch, and we'll um, then be done. We'll wrap up around 2, and some projects might work. wrap up at different times. Here's what it's going to look like. We have one project that is fully construction, building a wheelchair ramp. We have another work site that has a little bit of construction, a little bit of carpentry. We need some some hands-on skilled labor, but we also need a lot of labor at this second site that is organizational, that will be working inside, um, helping the homeowners organize some things, setting up for a, a yard sale with just a lot of stuff to go through. And so you do not have to be a carpenter to sign up to be a part of this. We can take um, various ages. We can take various skill levels. We just want you to be there, want you to sign up. And really, the question will come about young children. Probably like older elementary is good. We probably don't have stuff that we can do because both sites will actually have some construction going on. We we don't want to have necessarily the younger kids involved because it's not going to be really safe for everyone there. But from older elementary up, you're good to sign up and to participate. So in the gymnasium, there's a sign-up sheet for this Saturday. Please sign up today so that we can get organized for what we're going to do with Rebuilding Hope on Saturday. Tonight is movie night, and we're watching a movie about about Christians who are persecuted. And so there is some intensity to it. And so we want to invite everyone to the movie while telling you, 
our normal kids ministry, Awana, is going on upstairs. And Awana's starting a little bit earlier than normal tonight because the movie is starting at 5.30. Awana's going to start at 5.30. We're all going to be done around 7.30 um, together, okay? So movie starts at 5.30 in this room. We'll provide popcorn and drinks. Parents, if you want your older children to watch the movie with you, that's fine. It is rated PG-13 because of some of the violence that's displayed. The movie is created by Voice of the Martyrs, an agency that, that, um, that helps us know how to pray for Christians persecuted around the world. So bring kids to Awana at 5.30. Everybody else, join us for the movie night um, tonight at 5.30. And then on Wednesday night, the 30th, um, we're going to have a night of prayer for Ukraine, and the global church, as we've spent tonight having our, our hearts and our minds stirred up for the needs of Christians living in difficult circumstances, we are going to then, on Wednesday night, have a night of worship and prayer in this room for um, the needs of Ukraine in particular, but also the global church as the church suffers. And so uh, join us for both of those, both tonight and Wednesday night, the 30th. Um, and then finally, I'll tell you, I will we'll do a more official um, ordaining next week, but um, our elder selection process is completed. And so we have, I told you guys, we had one elder that was rotating off, and that was um, Craig Clark. So we thank Craig for his three-year term of service to this church. We now are adding two elders into the mix to serve three-year terms. Tom Perry, who has served before, has um, committed to serve another three-year term through the election of the congregation, the approval of the elders, and, and Tom hearing from God that this is what God is doing in him. And then we have a first-time elder, Jerry Nelson, who is also committed to a three-year term. So we will be uh, praying over and ordaining um, Jerry in the next couple of weeks as he begins his service to the church as an elder. And Deacon balloting process, that will start soon. And so we'll, that will work the same way. If you're a member family, you're going to have a ballot with, um, with the, the uh, you're going to have an envelope with the ballots in it for the number of members in your household. So please go ahead and start praying about that process too, because um, qualified, godly leaders are essential to the church. And we praise God for his faithfulness to us in raising up two new men to serve in the elder leadership team this term, and we'll continue praying for the deacon leadership. Let's go to Luke chapter 22 together. Did you know that Plato, the great Greek philosopher, did not like books? He was actually anti-book. He was actually anti the written word. This is what he said. If men learn this, meaning how to make books, if men learn this, it will implant forgetfulness in their souls. They will cease to exercise memory because they rely on that which is written. Calling things to remembrance no longer from within themselves, but by means of external marks. What you have discovered is a recipe not for memory, but for reminder. And it's not wisdom that you offer your disciples, but only its semblance. For by telling them many things without teaching them, you will make them to know much while also knowing nothing. Now, if Plato feels that way about books, imagine how he'd feel about a smartphone. Because the whole point of Plato's statement there about books is that books will make people forget. 
Because what books will do is you will write it down, and because you write it down, you will not memorize it. And because you write it down so that you can access it later, you will, you will exude less mental energy in trying to remember it for yourself because you'll just say, well, it's written down so I can get to it later. And let's be real. Plato is right about that, that we do have a mental capability of memorization that for most of us is somewhat untapped because we can write it down because we put, can put alerts and reminders in our phones. We, we have those tools, and often those tools don't make life better. They just make us lazier in the things that we're supposed to do. And what Plato is getting at here is that society is better when men are more reflective, more thoughtful, etc. But, but the, the thing that Plato says that I disagree with, and I think Jesus in this passage would disagree with, he says if men learn how to write and write books, it will implant forgetfulness in their souls. As we approach Luke 22 today, the truth is Jesus is prepared for forgetfulness in the souls of men. It's not something that men have to implant in their own souls. It's already there. And you look through the life of Jesus and you look at what Jesus' disciples, his followers, if you look even back farther to the nation of Israel, forgetfulness is implanted in the souls of every human being. So then what are we going to do about it? Plato says, don't write it down. It will just encourage you to remember less. And yet, at Mount Sinai, God told Moses, write this down so that the people will remember. See, God doesn't expect us to reach this great intellectual plane that Plato is expecting all mankind to go to. God actually comes down to us. Plato is actually asking humans to go up to this higher plane of intellectualism, and God says, no, I need to come down to make it more simple for my people. So he gives the written word in the law um, in the, for the old covenant people. And then he comes, Jesus, as the word, new revelation of God, new interpretation of what the law was always intended to mean, and he builds reminders. The story of Scripture is a story of a faithful God and forgetful people, whether it's Israel or the church whether it's King David or Peter, people forget. People forget what is most important and forget who God is and what it means to follow him. So God builds reminders in. Today's passage is about a reminding task. It's not just about, see, see the written word is beautiful because we can go to the word of God for reminders of the gospel. But here, God gives us an activity a task to do, and in the doing, in the physical act, we are reminded of the gospel. And so today, we, we will close our service with that physical act, the act of receiving the Lord's Supper, the broken body in the bread, the, the shed blood in the wine. As we receive that together, remember, this is a task that exists because we're forgetful. And it's a task that exists so that we will remember the truth of the gospel. But as we'll see today, it's a task that isn't just, doesn't, that Jesus doesn't just invent in Luke 22. Because there was a, a meal of remembrance long before Jesus came to die. And what we experience as the Lord's Supper 
is a fulfillment of the original meal of remembrance. So today we'll talk about deliverance and disappointment. Deliverance. Jesus is all about deliverance in this passage. He's talking about past deliverance in the Exodus. He's talking about future deliverance at the cross. And he's talking about how we live out that deliverance as kingdom representatives. Three phases, three epics of deliverance for Jesus in view in this passage of Luke 22, 1 through 38. What are the disciples doing? Disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. We have, in this one passage, duplicity, distrust, discord, denial, and dullness. All right here in this passage. But we're going to start with Judas. And we're going to start with verses 1 through 6 of Luke 22. So turn there with me, and we'll see the betrayal, the duplicity of Judas... And we'll start there, and then we'll move into what Jesus is doing for deliverance. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So who initiates this? According to Luke 22, it looks like it's the chief priests and the scribes. They're the ones that have it out for Jesus, that want to stop Jesus. They're also afraid of the people. They're afraid that the people will rise up against them if they do it in public. So it's an important part of this passage it's an important part of what, what we see develop over the next few verses, that, that they want to abduct Jesus, arrest Jesus in private. And Jesus' behavior on Passover and his preparation for the meal makes a lot more sense when you understand that the chief priests are being sneaky here. They're trying to get him away from the crowd so that the crowd will not stop them from arresting him. So it looks like the chief priests are initiating it, the chief priests and the scribes. But then in verse 3, we see that Satan enters into Judas, called Iscariot. And so the chief priests and scribes are initiating the evil. Satan is orchestrating behind the scenes. Judas is succumbing to it in verse 3 when Satan enters into him. But in all of this, God remains in control. He retains sovereign control over all of these actions so that when Jesus references the betrayal in verse 21, behold, the hand of him who betrays is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. It's important to recognize this in this scene of great evil in the Scriptures. There are sinful men that are initiating the evil. Satan is behind the, behind the scenes orchestrating the evil. And God retains control and is not surprised by any of it. And at the end of the day, God's plan has been determined to override the evil of both the sinful men and the great enemy, Satan. So yeah, the sinful man is incredibly responsible. Yeah, Satan is incredibly responsible for the evil that they initiate. And God has a plan to work his good in the midst of any and all evil, including the worst evil here. 
when Jesus suffered and died, he, God had a plan to bring about what his will had determined in the end. And so it works with the evils that we face. But Judas succumbed. Judas succumbed to the, to the actions of Satan. But recognize this, when it's, we see that Satan is involved here. Satan is involved in two of these scenes with two of the disciples. Once with Judas and once with Peter, Satan shows up. Recognize that as we look at the difference between Jesus and the disciples, so much of it is where their heads are at. Jesus is fighting a cosmic battle with the great enemy of God and the great enemy of humanity, Satan himself. And the disciples have no idea what's going on most of the time. They're distracted by other things, by their own interests, by their own goals. And so while, while Jesus' mind is on an eter- on a eternal kingdom and a cosmic battle for the souls of men, the disciples are focused on themselves and the meal that is right in front of them. That's important here. Let's see how Jesus is delivering. The past scene of deliverance. In verse 7, the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb um, had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. Tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? There where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished, and prepare it there. And they went And they found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, remember the scene. We've talked about this a couple times. There's tens of thousands of extra people in Jerusalem for this Passover feast. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a week-long feast that, that culminates in the Passover day, the day of sacrifice, and, the pass, and, and also involves this meal, the Passover meal, which is also called the Seder meal. And in the Seder meal, the, the Jews would remember and celebrate what God did in the Exodus. And so they would commemorate the meal that the Jewish slaves ate in Egypt as God was delivering them, where the slaves ate the unleavened bread, bread that was not leavened so that they could eat it quickly and be quick in their meal. It says, make haste in Exodus 12. But in the Passover meal, they would recline, they would take their time, and they would celebrate. We're no longer slaves like the slaves of Egypt, like the slaves of the Jews that were slaves in Egypt. So the feast is a week long. The Passover, the day of the sacrifice, is one particular day, and the Seder is built around that one particular night as well. So just to be clear here, what Jesus is asking the disciples to do would have been crazy because with tens of thousands of extra people in town, you do not plan a meal for a large group of people in a guest room the day of. Remember I told you, Jesus and his disciples are not staying in the city. They're camping out on the Mount of Olives, Scripture says. And now they need to find a place, a guest room in the city. Every guest room would have been filled unless God ordained for a particular guest room to be used for a particular purpose. So so this is God's sovereign hand orchestrating these events, even in the placement. But here's the other thing about it. Why would Jesus not have this plan in place well ahead of time? Why would he not tell his disciples what the plan is? 
because one of the twelve had already committed to betray him. And the plan to betray him was to betray him away from the crowds. Where would be a good place to betray Jesus away from the crowds? The place that Jesus had ordained to have the Passover meal with just this small group of disciples. Now, Jesus, you look at this and you think, but why is Jesus being weird here? Why is he not even telling Peter, James, and John, or Peter and John, they're going to prepare the meal, and he doesn't tell them where they're going. So you have 12 disciples. Jesus says, hey, you two, go over there. He doesn't even tell them where they're going. The other 10 they are sitting there, they have no idea where Peter or John are going, and Judas doesn't know where the supper is until he walks in the room. Why? Because the supper needed to happen. The arrest needed to happen. But the supper needed to happen first. And Jesus is very carefully orchestrating these events so that Judas doesn't know where the supper is, so that the arrest can happen after supper and not before the supper. Why? Because the supper is really important for us too. Because in the supper, in the, the remembrance of the Passover meal, Jesus reinstitutes, he reinterprets. He, he clarifies an interpretation that, that nobody saw from the beginning, but was there. That the bread is not just unleavened bread for the people to eat quickly, but the unleavened bread is the body of Jesus that is broken for the sins of mankind. And the blood is not just about the Passover, the Passover lamb whose blood was on the doorposts at that first Passover. The blood is pointing towards the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, that would be shed for all mankind. This was an incredibly bloody week, an incredibly bloody day in Jerusalem. Tens of thousands of pilgrims coming to offer sacrifices in the temple. And, and every unit, every member of the priesthood was on call to slit the throats of animals in the temple. There was blood everywhere throughout the temple mount. And people were walking away with the hides of these, bloodied, uh, the, of these killed animals that were sacrificed to God. There was blood dripping through the streets. It was a scene where you knew that blood was a part of the covenant. And blood was a part of what had to happen in order for sins to be atoned for. This is an important scene for Israel. And into that story, Jesus interprets it as pointing to himself at a level that would have been surprising even to his closest followers. So Jesus is constantly preparing the disciples for something, and the disciples are constantly being, prepared, being found unprepared for what Jesus is doing. Verse 14, when the hour comes, Jesus reclines at the table. Notice, he reclines. That's important. Luke doesn't just throw in random words there. Jesus is reclining because the first Passover, the people weren't able to recline. And now, even to this day, when Jews celebrate the Passover Seder meal, they recline at table as a statement. God has made it to where we are no longer slaves, but free. Slaves have to eat ready to run. But we have been purchased. We have been, we have been released from our slavery, and therefore we can recline at table. When the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, 
I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had finished giving thanks, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after the they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Look at what Jesus is doing here. He takes the cup, and then the bread, and then another cup. And in each of these actions, Jesus is reinterpreting the Passover Seder and pointing to himself. In, in cup number one, he takes a cup and he says, here, distribute this amongst yourselves. That There is a common cup that is not there in the Passover meal. That is not what they did. So that action would have been surprising to the disciples. Why did Jesus say, here, pass the cup around the room? Because the cup of Jesus' blood was communal at a level where they were not having to offer their own sacrifices like in the Old Covenant, but there was one sacrifice, and so Jesus gives them the image of one cup. That's why some churches still utilize the common cup for communion. And if y'all want to do that, then we can talk about that. I'm just kidding, we're not going to do that. But we still have the separate cups here. But there is a beautiful imagery for why Jesus is doing that. The common cup is to say we are all drinking from the same fountain, the blood of Jesus, and in that drinking from that fountain, we are united in that. And so we call the Lord's Supper communion often because we're not just communing with God, we are communing with each other. It's a family meal where people from all different uh, shapes and sizes, all different phases of life, all different interests and backgrounds, we are all brought together at the table of Jesus to drink in the blood of Jesus and recognize it is the blood of Jesus. The only thing that can truly unite different human beings together in full unity is the blood of Jesus. To be one with Jesus first, and then become one with each other. It's true of marriage, it's true of friendship, it's true of relationships, it's true of the church. The way to be unified is to be unified to Christ first. So that's the first cup. And then he takes the bread. See, in the first Passover, they didn't add leaven to their bread because it would take longer for the bread to rise. And so there was a practical element. But there's also a, a biblical sign in this, in that the leaven throughout Scripture is seen as the world, the stain and the influence of the world. And so for bread to be unleavened and for unleavened bread to be Jesus' body, is a way of Jesus reminding them that his body is unstained from the world. Though he is present with them, he does not carry the same stains that we carry in our flesh. You know, the new covenant is described in Ezekiel as God removing a heart of stone and implanting a heart of flesh. We need this new unstained flesh to transform our old brokenness. And so at the end of the service, we're going to receive the broken body of Christ. And I want you to remember this as we do it. And every time we do it, let's think about this. Our flesh is broken and we need something new. 
And that's what the body of Christ is all about. It's about making what is broken new. Making what is prone to sin, what is decaying, and making it new. But then he takes the cup again. And he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And he's contrasting the atoning work of the old covenant where, again, there's blood everywhere in the temple. And he's now saying, no, no, no. One person's blood. One sacrifice. One act of sacrifice results in all of the atonement needed for mankind. This is my body. This is my blood. We need to be careful about this because here's what happens. I do not believe there's anybody in this room wrestling over whether the cup and the bread supernaturally become the literal body and blood of Jesus. There are some church tra traditions that emphasize that, that there is this transubstantiation where the, the bread and the wine, as they are prayed over by the priests, become literally the body and blood of Jesus as they are consumed. I do not believe anybody in this room is struggling through whether or not that is the right interpretation here. But what I think happens on the other side, I can't tell you how many times I talk like this. We have one cliff over here, we have one cliff over here. We have one mistaken interpretation or mistaken doctrine over here, and one mistaken interpretation or doctrine over here. And it's very easy to move against, swing against transubstantiation and say, it's just a symbol. It's just a picture. It is a symbol. It is a picture. But it's Jesus' body and blood we're talking about. So we don't need to say it's just as anything. It, 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 this is a significant memorial meal that God is calling us to. It is not to be taken lightly. It is not to be taken in the church as, well, it's just a, it's just a piece of bread and it's just a cup of juice. We... we carry the significance of the old covenant meal of remembrance, the Passover, into the significance of the night that Jesus died and, and his eventual resurrection. We hold all of that significance and we boil it down to one single cup and one single piece of bread. And that is something that is incredibly significant that we should not take lightly. So is it a picture? Yes. Is it the literal body and blood of Jesus? No, I don't think it is. But it is a picture that is essential for us to understand because it is literally the action that God gives us to remember the gospel. There's lots of things we can read to remember the gospel. God gives us one thing to do to remember the gospel. In, in a sense, you could say God gives us two things to do. One is one time, and that is the act of baptism. It's the first pick, that's the first physical action, action that is a picture of the gospel that he's calling all believers to. Be baptized. Buried with Christ, in, put, being placed in the water. Buried with Christ. And then risen again, being raised out of the water. That's the beautiful picture of baptism. We do that one time. We do the Lord's Supper all the time. We do it. And when we gather, we do it once a month in this church as a memorial and as a remembrance. Because, guys, we're forgetful and we forget the gospel. We forget what we're really here for. We forget what this church thing is all about. We forget what the life of following Jesus is all about unless we stop and we say it's about his broken body. It's about his shed blood. Otherwise, we forget the significance of our own sin. But we need to be reminded 
of, of the significance of drinking in somebody else's blood. Even if it feels like an uncomfortable image or an uncomfortable thing to think about, the death that Jesus died was gruesome and it was necessary for your sin. And when you make it just a sign and you minimize the significance of the Lord's Supper, what you ultimately do, and I know this isn't intentional, but what you ultimately do is you minimize the significance of your own sin. And at the end of the day, we can't afford to do that because we are new in Christ, certainly. We are his sons and daughters, certainly, but only because of a broken body and shed blood. So what are the disciples doing? What are the disciples getting out of this reinterpretation of the Passover meal? Well, they're certainly distracted with other things. Verse 23, Jesus lays out, hey, somebody around this table is going to betray me. So what happens in verse 23? They fight about it. They begin to question one another, which of them it was who was going to do this. So this is a culture of distrust amongst the disciples. I said, this is a, he sent the one cup around the table to bring them together. And what did they do immediately after that? They accuse each other. And this, gospel, or this culture of distrust and this culture of self-protection, this culture of rivalry, it leads to forgetting the gospel. It was true for them. It's true for us. But then it gets worse. Verse 24, Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Worldly leadership versus kingdom leadership, here displayed. We can learn a lot from worldly leadership. Uh, we can learn a lot from the secular leadership books and principles. There's, there's a lot of good there. But, but Jesus is very clearly saying here, I don't need you to lead my kingdom like the world leads kingdoms. I want my leaders to be different. I'm my, I want my leaders to be transformed. I want them to have totally different priorities and totally different actions. Jesus had displayed this when they walked into the room. Luke doesn't tell this story, but you guys know the story. When they walked into the room to have that dinner, who was the one that got down and washed their feet? That was Jesus. And now Jesus is calling back to their mind what he did when they walked in by saying, the leader is the one who is serving, who gets his hands dirty who doesn't think too highly of himself and actually condescends to serve. How did Jesus do that? But Jesus came and became a human, became a man to suffer and to die for those that he loves. That was leadership for Jesus, giving his very life for those that would follow him, for those whom he loved. But notice this, Jesus, Jesus has this comparison or contrast between the one who reclines at table and the one who serves. The leader, the important one, reclines at table, while the unimportant one serves. Jesus is both. I, I told you at the beginning of the supper, Jesus is reclining at table, but he only reclines at table after he serves. What does that tell us? Jesus is the one to be honored. He is rightful, rightfully the one who reclines at table and everybody else serves him. But Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve. Christians, if we are meant, if we are going to 
represent Christ to people. We represent Christ in service. That's why a lot of us are showing up on Saturday to serve people that we don't know. Physical acts of service show leadership in God's kingdom. Rivalry leads to forgetting the gospel. Service of others is a reminder of the gospel because Jesus condescended to serve others. So what's Jesus doing? He's delivering. Verse 28, he's thinking about his future kingdom. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what Jesus does. He takes disappointing disciples and makes them into kingdom leaders. Jesus is, these guys are arguing about who's going to be greatest when Jesus is talking about dying and his blood being poured out. Literally, he says, my blood is being poured out. And then they start arguing about who's better between them. And now Jesus says, what I'm doing with you guys is I'm creating for out of you kingdom leaders to sit on thrones and rule over my eternal kingdom. So the disciples are disappointing all through this passage. But all the while, Jesus is transforming disappointing disciples into kingdom leaders. So when we fall short, like the disciples do, it's a good reminder for us. And Peter ups the ante. He goes to another level of disappointment. Because Jesus looks at him, Simon, Simon, Simon is Peter's other name. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. Why did, why did Peter deny Jesus? We'll see the scene in next week's passage. Peter denied Jesus because he didn't want the people around him to know that the guy that was about to be executed was his friend, that he was a follower of the guy who was about to be executed. It was fear of man that led to denial for Peter. Look at all these things that cause us to forget the gospel, this duplicity of, of Judas. He wanted good for Jesus, but he actually wanted the kingdom as he expected the kingdom to come. So he gave up on Jesus and took the money and said, distrust of others in, on Jesus' team, others that are in the same group of leadership, discord amongst other believers and followers of Jesus, and then a fear of man that leads to denial. All of these things are still challenges for us as we can forget the gospel so easily. And all the while, Jesus is still preparing and still teaching, still unfolding the scriptures in this meal of remembrance. And the last thing, this dullness that leads them to miss the point. Verse 35, I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals. Did you lack anything? They said nothing. He's referring to when he sent them out in pairs to do ministry in Galilee. He said to them, now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. 
And he said to them, it is enough. The phrase, it is enough, comes across differently in the Aramaic and the Greek than we might hear in English. So you need to get the sense of what Jesus is actually saying here. He is, set, he is using a phrase out of frustration to guys that don't get it. That's enough. Because he's been teaching all night. He's been unfolding the scriptures to them. He's been talking about how he fulfills the scripture. He just quoted one of the most important messianic prophecies. Isaiah 53, 12, he, he quotes and says that this Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, is going to be numbered with the sinners. And, and he says, that's enough. Why does he say that's enough? Because Jesus just gave this group of men this incredible sense of revelation, interpreting a passage that they didn't think was about him and saying, this is about me. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. They all knew what Isaiah 53 said. They all probably had it memorized. And what did they hear when Jesus connected himself with Isaiah 53? We get swords? Legitimately, that, that's the application for them. Hey, we get swords. Jesus, I got one. He's got one. We got two here. They missed the point of what he was saying and emphasized the swords. The swords aren't the point. I mean, that's, that's what guys do, right? You, you start talking about swords, and your mind just focuses on, narrows in on the sword. That wasn't what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about his suffering. But he was talking about their suffering too. What he said when he said, take your money bag, take your knapsack, and take a sword. He said, be ready to run. Not be ready to overthrow the Roman government. Be ready for the persecution that would come in the passage we talked about last week. Be ready to run because times are going to get hard. And why are times going to get hard? Because Jesus is going to suffer. You will suffer because the one you're following is going to suffer. Jesus is going to be numbered with the transgressors, with the sinners. There's three points that close Isaiah 53 in verse 12. Jesus will be identified with the sinners, numbered with the transgressors. Jesus will bear the sins of many, and Jesus will make intercession for sinners. So brothers and sisters, what we're about to do, the band's going to come up and lead one more song, but then what we'll do is we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Why? Because we're forgetful. Books didn't cause us to be forgetful. Smartphones didn't cause us to be forgetful. They sure don't help. But we're forgetful on our own right because we're fallen human beings. But in God's plan of redemption, he has built in reminders for us. And as we stand and sing, what we'll sing about is our need for this Savior to achieve salvation from outside of us. Because we do not have the resources for salvation and life eternal inside of us. We've got to receive a sacrifice from outside. And so what does this gospel, what is this gospel message that we proclaim in eating today? We proclaim the gospel that says we are sinners. Blood is required for sacrifice, for the atonement of sin. When we humble ourselves and receive Jesus, we get new life and new flesh in the body of Christ. And because Jesus is not just dead, but he was made alive when he raised up from the dead, we have new life in him. How do you receive it? You repent of your sin. You believe that this broken body and shed blood is good news for us. And you receive. You receive the new flesh and the new life. 
So the application for those of you that haven't received that gift yet is to do it now. As we sing the words of the song, give your life to Jesus now. Repent, believe, receive. It's that simple. For those of us that know the gospel, have received the gospel, be prepared to receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus in a new way today. Think about it as if it's the first time. Think about it as if you just figured out what the beauty of the gospel is all about. And receive it, receive it in joy, because this was a sacrifice that was made for you. Let's stand and worship together.
be seated. Before we receive the Lord's Supper, I'll remind you that um, when we are in normal circumstances, what we used to do is pass the communion elements around. And as we did that, we would also receive the offering for the Samaritan offering, a fund that goes outside of our church, not to fund the ministries of the church, although that giving is important. I remind you today that it is good, it's a good discipline to come into worship and receive and give. And so I want to make a reminder about the opportunity we have not just to receive the broken body and shed blood and the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also to give back to him, either through the general ministry of the church, and there's boxes in here and in the gymnasium for that, but also through the Samaritan Fund. So I'll remind you to be diligent and generous in your giving. And now we'll take the cup, the broken body of Jesus. We take the bread and we remember that this is unleavened bread for a reason, to remind us that the flesh, the new flesh we receive from Jesus is unstained by the, by the inheritance of the first Adam. That we are not now under the first Adam, but under the second Adam, Jesus. And in that we mean we receive a heart of flesh that is unstained from the world, by which we are able to follow after Jesus, and through which God looks at us at the end and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Receive this in the name of Jesus. And now we take the cup. Jesus said, this is the blood of the covenant, the blood of a new covenant, that doesn't require blood to be shed time after time after time. Individual sacrifices for each household every year. That's not what is required under the new covenant. The new covenant is a once and for all sacrifice that puts us all at equal standing before the throne of God. That makes us all members of his family. And we do this for the forgiveness of our sins and as a fresh reminder of what we have received in him. We do this. We receive grace in remembrance of him. And Father, we pray now that as we have freely received, that we may freely give. That we may freely give of our tithes and offerings to you and your kingdom, but also that we may freely give of our time, of our strength, that we would serve as you serve. That we would represent our love for you through love for those created in your image all around us. That by, your, by the love you displayed, that we would follow you by that love and that your kingdom would grow as your people love those outside of your kingdom well. Father, may the gospel be clear. May redemption by Jesus be the thing we celebrate most. We praise you for the broken body and shed blood of your son. Amen. Now stand and receive the blessing from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.